You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. Welcome to the Core Curriculum Project. We're, at, we're in the second series. We are talking about Plato's Republic with various members of the Christian Humanist Network, uh, different podcasters from different parts of that. And so today I've got with me Michael Farmer and Nathan Gilmore. And everybody knows Michael Farmer because he's the philosopher king of the Christian Humanist Network and lives in Woodstock, Georgia, with his wife, Victoria Reynolds Farmer, of the Christian Feminist Podcast. And then we've got Nathan Gilmore, who's the longtime podcaster uh, with the Christian Humanist uh, Podcast. So very happy to be with you guys. How are y'all doing today? Good. Doing pretty well. I always think of myself as Nathan's helpmeet. Oh, really? Okay. Well, then you're both philosophers kings, because, you know, we, as we discussed about, you know, book five when I was doing that, I know you haven't heard that yet, but... You know, if women are able to be, have the reason, capacity to be philosopher kings, they can. So you can be a helpmeet and still be, you know, a philosopher king. You don't have to be the main okay. Joe. Good to know. Yeah, it's good to know. Okay, well, we are on book 10, the last book of The Republic, and it's a doozy having to do with <laughs> all kinds of things about mimesis and uh, you know, illusions, falsehood, and so on. So I'm just going to give us uh, just a little reminder about where we are in the Republic in general, and then we'll get to some questions and we'll see where it takes us. So in Book 10, Socrates reintroduces the question of the poet and the arts uh, artist, and he hasn't been you know, dealing with it for quite some time in the books prior to it. Uh, and it's almost as if doing that on purpose, want to get back to one of the most important issues. And earlier in the Republic, he had excluded the poets from the Republic, primarily on the basis of them being telling dangerous lies. For instance, making a god act like a human being, as, for instance, Zeus does in the Iliad, acts like a human being, Homer had done that to him, and that's all bad. So now we're returning to the issue with a vengeance here in Book 10, and... I think uh, Plato's even getting more precise about the dangers of art. And it boils down to his move that is really the defining move, I think, of Western metaphysics, although we can talk about this, which is to say that there is reality, the forms, and then there are appearances, which are illusions. And that to mirror the forms is necessarily to be giving an illusion, not telling the truth. So you're setting out appearances when you're doing acts of imitation, not reality itself. And so that's going to just yield you bad copies of reality. And so in this book, you get that famous description of the bed. You've got this bed that in the forms, in the world of the forms, is real. It's the one thing that's true. And then the carpenter makes a particular bed, but that's not a real bed because it's an imitation of bedness, if you will. And then the painter copies that, so the painter is three times removed from reality um, in the realm of imitation. So I thought <clears throat> that Plato seems to have two problems, and one of them is a metaphysical problem uh, with the idea of appearances being elevated possibly over truth. And then the other is a moral problem that poets and artists are going to corrupt people's souls. So what I thought we would do is just take those separately and start with the metaphysical question and kind of address that and then go to the moral question, if that's okay with you guys. So, Sure, sounds good. Sounds right. like a winner. So what do you guys think about that argument from the, on the metaphysical level? I'll, I'll confess, Christina, that it still makes me laugh that so many people over so many books have taken Socrates straight in this section. Yes. Uh, because Plato is a careful enough thinker and a skillful enough writer that certainly he's aware that an imitation of Socrates is making these arguments that mm -hmm. imitations of speech are no good. Correct. Uh, I mean, I think that he is absolutely at play here. And I think absolutely he is setting up 
Um, you know, what he wouldn't have called thought experiments because God hadn't invented Wittgenstein yet. Uh, but nonetheless, I mean, you know, these are occasions for the readers uh, to actually take on these things, you know, not to receive them and, you know, either parent them or to oppose them as if they were simple, mm -hmm. but to enjoy the complexity, right? I mean, you know, this is uh, an imitation Socrates saying that anything an imitation Socrates says can't be worth anything, which can't be true unless it is true, <laughs> but also must be not true because it is true. Right. And so, I mean, you know, I think this is, uh, you know, almost like a Tao Te Ching kind of moment where it is precisely the contradictions that are the point. Mm -hmm. uh, Michael, I mean, am I... I <laughs> You're, I mean, as usual, you're turning Plato into Derrida. Oh. No, I think that I am reading Plato alongside Derrida. I think Derrida, for all of his faults, and certainly we can name his faults, was a careful reader of Platonic dialogue. Arguably overly careful. Ooh. Oh, no such thing, no such thing. So if, if your reading of this is correct, Nathan, does Plato have a metaphysics at all? I think he is encouraging us to do metaphysics ourselves. And, and let, me, let me back up because, I mean, I take all of Plato's dialogues to be teaching texts. I don't th think that they are essays in the way that, for instance, uh, you know, Kant's critique of judgment is an essay. Uh, Kant has a point. He gives you reasons for the point. Uh, he debunks possible objections to the point. And, you know, for all of his impossible prose, he stays on task. I think Plato's doing something entirely different with his dialogues. This one, the symposium, the euthyphro, whichever one you want to pick, uh, you know, because he is not there in the room. And of course, you know, he addresses this in the Phaedrus as well as in this text, he is giving us occasion to interact with the text. But in order to do that, the text itself has to move around so that we have to move with the text. So that's, for in your mind, the purpose of the dialectic is the spaces kind of in between, the movement between the different... Yeah, yeah, and that's why it amuses me that people think that they can find, you know, this sentence or this sentence that mm -hmm. imitation Socrates speaks and says, this is Plato's position, mm -hmm. uh, when, you know, if Plato would take that position, then it would render the text in which he takes that position invalid yeah not to mention the text can only be invalid if it's valid right not to mention the myth of Ur, which is imitation oh but, i love the myth of Ur. Yeah. i so love the myth of Ur. you know ending with the myth of Ur, even you know which is, I, I call it the parable of Ur, but i probably thing. hold socrates up too high <laughs> <laughs> it's regardless it is definitely an imitation a work of art metaphorical etc and so therefore falling under the definition of what uh, imitation would be I, right. I guess I guess I'm just slow to follow you where you're going with this, Nathan, because as Christina mentioned, in some ways this is the foundational text for all of Western metaphysics. And if if Plato is really just doing some sort of shuck and jive where uh, he's not really making a statement about ontology, but he's making a statement about, oh, I don't know, our approach to ontology, I, I there, there is no stronger ontological statement in all of Western metaphysics than Plato. And if he's not making it, what does that say about ontology? Well, what it means is, I mean, what Richard Rorty says in his little book, uh, what is it called? Um, Contingency, Irony, Truth? No, 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 no. It's his later book. It's a, it's a hope and political something or other. It late career book. But, I mean, he, he makes a statement that, that has uh, stayed with me for 20 years, even if the book's title hasn't, uh, <laughs> that... Plato was a philosophical genius. Platonists are simple-minded, poor readers. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, I, I really do think, and I mean, I, I realize that I am, uh, you know, taking Richard Rorty against a whole lot of other philosophical books on this point, but I really do think that people who try to build a system out of Platonic dialogue are missing the point of philosophical dialogue in the first place. Mm -hmm. There's certainly not a system the way there is in Aristotle, and mm -hmm. and I do think you have to take stock of the fact that Plato's argument is self-undermining, if not self-refuting. You see that certainly in the Phaedrus, where he makes the argument against uh, writing in a in a written dialogue. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. 
but I don't know that there's there's something there's something a little too Derridian to me about about turning Plato into this guy who sets up what appears to be a metaphysical edifice only to demonstrate that it's made of clouds. Mm-hmm. I'm agreeing with you, Michael, because I, having read and taught other portions of the Republic, I mean, and, and including the allegory of the cave, that that issue of reality versus appearance is so strong and so fundamental. And he's so devoted to not being misled by the truth that I can't see that at its most basic level, this is a kind of tongue in cheek move. I mean, yeah. I understand. But he's what he's ultimately saying there is no truth, essentially, or that truth right. is un- unavailable to us. Right. Or that we are on the way to truth. I mean, and, you know, I realize that this is not an episode on book seven, but I mean, yeah. in book seven, I mean, there's not just the cave shadows and the outside world, but there's also that intermediate phase of the fire and the shadows. Yes. So, I mean, you know, what if his dialogue, and I, this is how I tend to read them, so I shouldn't pretend to be coy here. That's Plato's job. Uh, but I think that what Plato is doing here is setting up not the outside world, but that fire stage. Hmm. Interesting. But I think if you read it that way, then, I mean, you know, if anything else, it at least makes more sense of, you know, what he does in Stephanus 607 D and E where he actually invites people to make a defense of poetry, right? And in fact, he invites the poets to make yes. that defense of poetry. Yes. So, I mean, yeah. you know, I, I think that that move makes more sense if what we've got here is a deeply, and I would say radically ironic kind of a move than it does if, you know, he has actually set forth a systematic dogma and, you know, now he's doing that, I don't know what, to dance in the end zone? I, mm-hmm. I, I don't know what to make of that, if that's the case. No, I, what I would argue, Nathan, is there's a sort of tragedy in his exclusion of the poets. He doesn't want to do it. He says early in book 10, and I have the Stephanus numbers, but they're only at the top of the pages, so I don't. it's somewhere in the 595 range. Ah, he's, okay, he's, okay, and my, mine are in the margins, so it's a little bit more precise. He says, I must speak my mind, although I confess I am checked by a kind of affectionate respect for Homer, of which I've been conscious since I was a child. For of all those beautiful, tragic poets, he seems to have been the original master and guide, but it would be wrong to honor a man at the expense of truth, and therefore I must, as I said, speak out. So I think he would really like to find a place for poetry in the Republic, and that's why he's inviting the the poets to kind of make a platonic uh, case for their vocation. Yes, but they have to make it in prose, Michael. They can't make it in poetry, do you remember Well, that? yeah, fair enough. <laughs> and that's what he says. Po- poetry that makes an argument is usually yeah. not very good anyway. Yeah, correct. Is it? No, it's terrible. But, I mean, it's but, so funny. I, mean, I, I shouldn't say, maybe Alexander Pope is the great, the great uh, lost Pope. Oh. I hate Alexander Pope and all the 18th century writers, so let's just not go there. But... <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean... So I, I, I think Plato is definitely torn... And I, I think that accounts for some of the tension you get in his methodology versus the uh, the, the plain meaning of what he's arguing. And, and and so there's an irony there, Nathan. I just don't think it's the, once again, Derridian, I would call it, irony that you're ascribing to Plato. Oh, and I would call it a platonic irony that Derrida discovered yeah. after it had mm-hmm. been hidden for so long. Okay, well, you've already answered then the second part of my question, which is whose response to the argument in the intervening years has been most meaningful to you? And it sounds like Nathan. Oh, Lee sure, said, I've shown my cards. Yeah, Derrida, <laughs> right? That that he has read Plato uh, correctly or more accurately. Not okay. Let me put it this way: not misread him. I mean, yeah. Well, and let me put like. Derrida next to another French thinker, Pierre Audot. Uh, his book, "What Is Ancient Philosophy," really makes the case that I find most compelling because it is a historically situated case for the same kind of reading, uh, namely that uh, the Platonic dialogues in their written form are disseminated and distributed, and Plato writes them with the full knowledge that he won't be present to be the interlocutor, pardon me, uh, so that he constructs the text themselves uh, so that someone without the experience and the skill of a Plato can still use them in a teaching way. Uh. Yeah, it's an interesting reading. I like that. Well, as I said, I mean, you know, it, it's it's definitely enlivened the way that I teach these texts. So I, I've I've become quite uh, fond of it myself. 
And our listeners who don't know, Nathan teaches the entirety of the Republic every year in his freshman comp class. Am I am I uh, not the case? that 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 uh, class? Unfortunately, has been phased out. Uh, so I'm trying to discover a new course where I can teach the Republic from cover to cover. Okay, because I, I miss it. I'm sorry we're not in video because my mouth just dropped open like three feet. You talk about the whole Republic in freshman writing. Yeah, about uh, twelve or thirteen times. Oh my. I, that's why you and I are going to have a hard time arguing days, with them from the When my kids move out, yeah. that, that is one of the four books that I'd like to write before I keel over one day. Uh, is a an introductory writing manual using Plato's Republic as its intertext. Oh my! Wow. Okay. Yeah, I feel like I should just hang up and let just Nathan talk. What do you think, Michael? Oh no, 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 no! <laughs> <laughs> Listeners hear too much of me already, Christina. They hear too much of me. My goodness. Todd, when we were signing up for episodes, or right before I made the, the uh, sign-up sheet live, Todd Pedler emailed me and said, uh, hey, when is this going to be live? I want to make sure Nathan doesn't take them all. Oh, yeah, that's funny. <laughs> or maybe we I'm should have. three of these episodes, listeners. Wow. <laughs> the restraint. Okay. Well, if we can... Okay, can we agree on this? Even if his view of the arts and imitation and all that is, is, is ironic. And I think that is his metaphysical issue of reality versus appearance appearances is not. Can we agree on that? Oh, I'll agree with that. Absolutely. Okay. Yeah. So, so Nathan, you're saying the irony, the Derridian irony of Plato is really only as far as art is concerned or. Uh, first I'd call it a platonic irony. I know, but I'm not going to let you do that. <laughs> and yet I will insist. <laughs> uh, but uh, yeah, I'd say that it is, you know, in saying that poetry in particular uh, is a violation of these principles. Okay. I'm, I'm more comfortable with the, the more restricted version of that irony than I am with the, I, I, the way I heard you. I heard you saying that his entire metaphysical project is ironic. No, no, no. I mean, this passage is ironic. Gotcha. And like I okay. said, I think that's why it culminates with the invitation the way that it does. And with the myth of Ur. And I think we're all in agreement about that. I mean, that's the way that I was taught it or taught to think about it when I was in graduate school, which I mentioned in the other, another podcast that I almost took more philosophy seminars in a grad school than I did English because I, you could have arguments. You could, you know, um, believe in something besides play. Right. And, and uh, I, which I, must have, must have made you very angry when Nathan started talking about how all this is just play. It didn't make me angry, but it kind of started up the little hackles going on there. Didn't make me angry, but uh, <laughs> I did, I did notice uh that Plato used the word play at one point. can't remember exactly where, at least in my translation, which I've got the um, Sterling and Scott uh, translation. Oh, and I've got the Reeve translation in case I didn't say that earlier. And I'm using uh, John Llewellyn Davis. Is it Llewellyn? Mm. Llewellyn. I'm not sure. Sounds good to me. But there's one point, and this is, again, moving to the more the moral argument where he's talking about the potential to corrupt people's souls and the worry about that. Yes, he says, um, this is 602 section in mine, but it seems that we are all but agreed on these matters. The imitator knows hardly anything about the things he imitates. Imitation is a kind of game and not to be taken seriously. And those who write tragedies either in iambic or heroic verse are the most extravagant of all the imitators. Yes, I, I love that passage. I, I can't say how much I love that passage where imitation Socrates says, mm -hmm. you shouldn't take anything that an imitation says seriously. Mm -hmm. And yet there he is, right? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, I, and like I said, I mean, I, 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 I take a borderline sadistic glee in melting my students' minds when we actually sit on that passage and think about what it means. Mm -hmm. I think you should. So does that mean that, uh, that we are to think that Plato is not concerned at all about uh, the issue of imitating poorly or degraded copies? Um, imitating poorly, no. Okay. Uh, I think that, you know, it, it's that adverb that really mm -hmm. brings us into a, a more interesting and I would say a more platonic conversation, right? Mm -hmm. uh, because again, all of these arguments are in the mouth of a, a an imitation of Socrates. So, I mean, there is at least the possibility that imitation can be done well if you are imitating the good person, right? Mm -hmm. 
And I think that's where the bridge from the metaphysical to the moral, uh, you know, gets us into some more interesting territory. Mm-hmm. And and this is where I, I wanted to pose a question to you two because I I started thinking about it. And by the way, listeners, I you know, this is probably the 15th or 16th time I've read this book and a dozen of those I was teaching them. And I'm still finding questions I should have seen, but I didn't, mm-hmm. which is what makes this book so freaking awesome. Uh, but, you know, it, it occurred to me when I was reading over the moral section, you know, we've got something that I would ca- call a characteristically, I don't know if I'd call it characteristically Mediterranean, because there's certainly Mediterranean cultures that don't follow this uh, paradigm. But this idea that, you know, the powerful passions are you know, we shouldn't trust them. Right. Uh, and you know, I always think, okay, you know, this is where we get the, the very reductionist notion of, you know, the Greek mindset, uh, where you, you are suspicious of emotion and so on and so forth. But then what occurred to me is that, I mean, you've got St. Paul who is, you know, in places to be sure informed by Greek thought, but in other places decidedly something else, right? Mm-hmm. Yes. Saying in, in first Corinthians or not first Corinthians, first Thessalonians that, you know, we do not mourn as those without hope do. So he seems to be doing some kind of regulation of the passions as well. Or am I, am I, am I only thinking about that because I'm thinking about Plato? I don't think so. I think Augustine is worried about it too. And especially when you think about Augustine's response to Homer it's not that different from what you see Socrates doing here through Plato's imitation of Socrates, however you want to put it. Right? There's, there's oh, yeah, yeah. a worry about the passions being stirred up too much. And that, right. and that leading out that way is problematic. Because the essence of goodness for Plato is allowing your reason to dictate the rest of your life. Yes, and I think that's clear right. and, and not ironic. Am I right in saying that? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, you okay. know, the fact that Dekayasune consists in letting the, yeah, I mean, like Michael just said, you know, the wisdom govern the appetites and the passions. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, you know, or the fighting spirit, as I've seen it translated, right. and I kind of like that translation. I get spirit uh, that, I, I do think that that is a fairly straightforward uh, moral proposal that he puts out there. Okay. So you could, I mean, you could see one problem with poetry then would be that it would not encourage that. And I I don't know that much about ancient Greek poetry, but I think just taking Aristotle at his word, um, that, that one of the purposes of the tragic play, for example, is to stir up, uh, fear and pity so that you can drain them or whatever in the, um, in the catharsis. I, 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 I think maybe Plato has a point that the things that we imbibe as art uh, can have a, a really deleterious effect on our souls. If, mm-hmm. if indeed the essence of goodness is to allow your reason to control things. Oh, mm-hmm. sure. I mean, you think about some of the plays that Plato would have been familiar with, right? I mean, you think of the Sophocles play Ajax, you know, I mean, this is someone who, you know, because of his rage at being denied Achilles armor, uh, he attempts to murder his comrades He's deluded by a god into murdering livestock instead, and then in his abject shame, he kills himself on stage. I mean, if if this is a, among other things, a manual for how to train a military society, that's not necessarily what you, you want your soldiers doing. Right. So I, I think there you have the combination of the the moral critique of poetry and the metaphysical critique of poetry sophocles doesn't know anything about what <laughs> what real uh goodness is and so and because of that his poem is deleterious on mm-hmm. the human soul mm-hmm. and it can't be otherwise because he doesn't have the knowledge he would say the requisite knowledge and understanding right and the only way to get that knowledge is to go through this this dialectical process that allows you, I don't remember if he says it in the Republic, but the way it works is it allows you to remember the things that you knew in the time your soul spent in the realm of the forms before coming to earth. Mm-hmm. Right. Right. I, I feel like he visits that indirectly in Republic, but I mean, it's definitely more of a theme in other dialogues. Right. 
I keep thinking of Augustine. I mean, sorry to keep bringing it back to it, but I've just been teaching the confessions and thinking about the way that entertainments bother Augustine. And so the part of the moral argument that Plato is in, in levying is that the that it appeals to these base parts of your soul that just want to have spectacle or entertainments and that that necessarily is not going to have a good you know, product that comes out at the other end. Um, right. And Augustine makes yeah. the same argument. He's very worried about, uh, about that in himself too, which is really kind of stunning. Like, uh, you know, watching him work out how anxious he is about, um, those parts of him that get too sucked in. It's almost like Augustine today would be sitting around worried about how many times he clicked play again on Netflix or whatever. Right. It's like, mm-hmm. I can't believe oh, I sure, did that sure. again and watched another episode and, and let myself go down that, that route. Um, right. And I mean, this is where I think Aristotle's moral psychology is just more adequate than Plato's is hmm. because I mean, he allows, and I mean, I, I, Christina, I forget if it was you or Michael who already made reference to this, he allows that, you know, one possible result of uh, being a spectator at a tragedy is that you will yourself become more like the worst of what you see on stage. Yes. But then another possibility is that you will be so terrified by it and you will be so piteous of the people who are consumed by those passions that therefore you will have agency to turn away from those things with greater force than you would have otherwise. Yes. Mm -hmm. And it just strikes me that that additional complexity that Aristotle allows is more adequate than what we see here. Yes. Yes. And the possibility... There's a kind of unappealing Puritanism in Platonic aesthetics. Yes. I don't don't think you could deny that. I think that's right. And, And a disallowal of the kind of powerful good, the powerful good that the appetites or desires can do. And, I, and to go back to Augustine, that's where he's more open to that. It's it, this understanding that you are kind of driven by your appetites and that you want God to give you greater appetite for him, desire, love right, right. for him, and not for these other things. And because he, and I think this, doesn't it come down to the fact that for Augustine, the truth is personal, necessarily personal, and for, say more about that. that that's interesting. Well, about a, it's about a relationship with a living God and a God who sees you and loves you and dies for you. And therefore, um, desire for him is more to use a platonic term of that kind of eros, right? Like a, a, you're drawn to the powerful personality, um, the charism, if you will, of, of God and his love for you. And, and of course, Plato will allow for that too. But at some level, it just comes off abstract. Um, and it has to, right? Because if numbers and that sorts of things are the highest truths, um, I don't know, Michael, come in. You you do a lot of thinking about personalism. Yeah, jump in yeah. On the this. the abstraction of the of yeah. the Platonic metaphysics is a problem, and yes. I think it, it creates a, a lot more problems going forward. I mean, you've written very extensively about the the kind of evils of Cartesian thought, and yes. I, I think in some ways Descartes' his metaphysics is just the the just Platonic metaphysics brought to their full blossom in the Enlightenment. Yeah, when you go the mathematical route in particular, the mathematical abstraction of it, right? The sort of Pythagorean perfection or whatever, right? Right. There, uh, there's something truly inhuman about that. Yes, there really is. And, and also and for, you can't eat beans. You can't <laughs> eat beans. So, for, But for Plato, that inhumanity, I think, is a good thing. I, I, I think there's something anti-human about Plato – um, Plato's philosophy. Yeah. It, it, well, which, that, that brings you know, me back to Paul, though, then, way. Michael. I mean, does that make Paul also an anti-human thinker? Not as much as Plato. Yeah. See, you're you're trying to uh, you're trying to get me in trouble. Uh, well, not of as much I am, as Michael. It's what I do. Ooh. Not as much as Plato. I because I I think the the thing that Christina is talking about the the idea that if if truth is a person, if if Christ, when he says, "I am the way, the truth, and the life," really means that. You can only go so far away from personalism. And yeah, so Paul's more platonic than um, a lot of people I like, but I, I would not I would not say he's fundamentally inhuman. Mm-hmm. Nor, nor I suppose would I say that um, that Plato is fundamentally inhuman. But I think his moments of humanity, the the kind of poetry he brings into his uh, to his dialectic, I, I think sometimes that's kind of despite himself. And it's interesting, Michael, because I, I, I frame it a little bit differently than that. I think that Plato, 
is exercising things that he won't name as moral capacities because he is capable of being uh, repulsed by certain emotional reactions to tragedy, among other things. Wait, he's exercising or exorcising? Oh, well, how did I use it in the sentence? I can't remember, uh, Christina. I'm sorry. It went out of my brain. Could you just you're, repeat you're, the idea? You're trusting my memory more yes. than I do here. <laughs> but, like, you know, I, for Plato, you know, he is uh, using, I'll, I'll change the okay. verb there, a certain moral capacity to see emotional reactions and to be repulsed by them. Okay. I think what Aristotle does is he extends that capacity to other human beings, not just to the rulers. And says that the citizens should also, uh, and now I will use exercise with lots of E's and no R's, should also exercise that capacity to be repulsed by these powerful passions like you see in Ajax or like you see in Philoctetes by Sophocles, where you've got you know, this, this desire for vengeance that becomes so powerful that you really can't pursue anything that resembles a common good. And I think to that, or not to that extent, in that respect, I'll put it that way, uh, I I can get on board with Plato's project here because uh, I don't want to say that emotions are inherently bad, but I do want to say that surrendering oneself to certain kinds of powerful emotions makes common endeavors impossible and, and in fact undoes the common endeavors that really should be going forward. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. Well, he says it, it, it feeds the worst elements of the soul and, and that those turn around and destroy the soul's reasoning part is what my translation says. Yeah. Yeah. Um, that is pretty powerful language. And then he later goes on to talk about the indestructibility of the soul, but you know what he, what he means is that damage, that corruption of the reasoning part that is supposed to be supreme, that if you feed those appetites continually too much, that they overtake. And I kept thinking of Thoreau, because I'm a really big Walden fan, and he's got that passage where Thoreau suddenly sees this chipmunk and wants to eat it raw. (laughs) (laughs) I do not remember that, that's kind of awesome. (laughs) It's just this same kind of fear that if I let that lower part that an appetite is the right word for it right in this case of appetite for a raw chipmunk if i let that appetite take over then and i continue to practice that and it becomes a habit i mean there is some room for habit development in plato's uh-huh. thought i think yeah. not as not as much as for in augustine but there is some or aristotle for that matter or aristotle for that matter right the, the thing it reminds me of is uh what virgil says to dante when they first go into hell in the inferno. He says, here are, here are the souls that have lost the good of reason. Mm. Yep, and yep. and that, that somehow giving yourself over to your passions, uh, which are, which are, I, I don't want to say passions are sinful, but certainly sin is often a passion. Giving yourself over to that, it, it can make it so that you can no longer reason straight, even if you want to. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Right, right. Well, and, and here's where, I mean, because the connotations of those words have shifted so much in the romantic period and after it, it's hard for me to think straight about them because yes uh you know i mean you know i feel like every other chapel service i attend at emmanuel college the students are being told to find your passion and let god you know give you a passion for this and a passion for that follow mm-hmm. your uh, bliss dude yeah well <laughs> no 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 not bliss passion let's stick with passion for a second right Whereas, I mean, you know, a lot of patristic writers, certainly Augustine among them, would say that passion categorically is bad, not because love is bad. I mean, Augustine and Dante both, I mean, are, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, some of the biggest proponents of love you'll find in ancient literature. But they don't regard love as a passion because it is inherently ordered rather than inherently destructive. That's right. Right. So, I mean, you know, they, they wouldn't even say destructive passions they would say passions and destructive would be included in the connotation of that word passions interesting yeah it's what fuels what uh, augustine would call curiositas and then of course cupiditas and then caritas is the love that is separate from those 
those um, misaligned passions, right? Yeah, yeah. So, yeah. I mean, we're going to have some extensive show notes on this episode. The number <laughs> Sorry, of names and concepts we've been tossing around. No, it's good. Dro- dropping names. Well, cupidity toss. You know that 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 where you get cupid, right? It's just like you're loving the created thing instead of the creator, and um, and curiositas is interesting too. This kind of like love for knowledge in and of itself, like you, like a almost acquisitive love of knowledge. And it's not the same thing as loving in a proper and an ordered way. Um, and I think right, those right. have to fit in with what you're talking about when you're talking about passions um, for Augustine. And uh, I'm sure Michael can tell you, I, I the, the curiositas, I, I can't read it without Heidegger. Yeah, with oh, over my shoulder in German. But Heidegger's uh, getting but it from Augustine. I never want to hear Heidegger whisper over my shoulder in German. Ever. (laughs) 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 And I certainly don't want to hear him reading poetry of his own over my shoulder because his poetry is terrible. It's the worst poetry I've ever read. And actually, that's that's a not unrelated point. It really is not. Because if you are a philosopher of this level of abstraction and your God, your truth is depersonalized, you can never write good poetry. And so I think oh. there's something about Plato that just doesn't get what what the the good that the poets really can do or that the artist really can do. But that seems patently untrue, Christina, just because the the visual images he uses, not just in the oh, Republic, no, but everywhere, are so incredibly indelible. In, in a real sense, he is a poet. Oh, I totally agree. What I'm saying is that he doesn't recognize it. Yes, fully. I would I would agree with that. I think he's in the service of it. Um, and, and I would argue, and I agree with Nathan, that some of it is ironic. I mean, he's not unaware. He's a brilliant philosopher. He's not unaware of it. But it almost feels like, you know, the old um, metaphor of that's always attributed to Plato's ideology of the sort of um, rhetoric as the handmaid kind of idea. You know? Oh, I always associate that with Aristotle. Oh, okay. I but was... keep, keep rolling with it. No, keep rolling with no, it because I'm interested. The whole idea that, that uh, you know, your language is in service to you and uh, – it doesn't have a mind of its own. You're the boss of it. Um, the Puritans really pick up on this aspect of it, right? As if, oh, as sure, if, sure. Well, as if well I mean, I'm sure Aristotle learned that from Plato, but I mean, yeah. he says what you just said very explicitly in book one of the rhetoric. Mm. Yeah, and the distrust of rhetoric that comes with that. I mean, and that's in Augustine, too. And I mean, obviously, Neoplatonic elements in Augustine. But that nervousness, but... And of course, Derrida would say this is totally impossible. The handmaid is the one that's in control here, right? Um, the handmaid deconstructs the... And now I keep thinking about uh, Margaret Atwood, too. So my head, my head is a little messed up when I think about handmaids. You know, they're the ones... Oh, okay, really okay. I was going to say, what in the yeah. world is the connection there? Yeah. But now I understand. The handmaid's tale. That's good. You know, it's like <laughs> there's, a, there's a, a, a thought that certain people are in power, but they're really not. You know, what's power, right? And this is what Derrida, of course, is bringing to the foreground. And uh, so this idea that you can control your handmaid uh, is what poetry... Tells you is false, at least if you're Derrida, and I think it's actually true. So, mm. if Plato so, thinks you can control your handmaid, now of course this goes back to the to the is it the Phaedrus? Yeah, it's the Phaedrus, right? Where yeah, it, if yeah. you weren't going to go there, I was. Yeah, yeah, go ahead, Christina. No, 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 no. You 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 started that chariot. Uh, yeah, <laughs> I did. I started. But that which car. horse is it? The yeah, which horse? That's the question, right? Which horse? Um. It, 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 it really all de- does depend on how much you think Plato really thought language had that kind of um, transparency or could be controlled, right? That it could actually get at the truth. And that's an open question. And mm. see, I think that Plato's confidence is not in the oration, but in the disputation or in the dialectic. Yes. Well, you have to have dialectic, don't you? Because yeah. you're, it's it's sort of towards it. It's never at it. It's always toward yeah. it. Well, the fact that it's dialectic demonstrates how weak language really is. Yeah. That, yes, and I would agree with that. 
the fact that so many of these dialogues are ostensibly about defining a word that never gets defined or gets defined very unsatisfactorily. Like justice. Like justice. Defined in book four, and yet there's six more books after it. Mm -hmm. Right, right. And again, that's why I am very suspicious of people who would make a system of it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think that you can't. Um, And and to that degree, it's also an artistic, uh, the dialectic is artistic. It's unsystematizable. You can't put it into some kind of nugget, like the yep. deconstruction in a nutshell. I don't know if you're familiar with that. By oh, John Caputo's yeah, book. John I Caputo. love that book. Yeah. yeah, I love the book too. But the, I mean, I know it's ironic, but still, deconstruction in a nutshell. It's like the whole point of deconstruction is that you don't put anything in a nutshell. And I know it's ironic, but still, he is trying to put it in a nutshell. And so, if you can't put Plato in a nutshell, you can't systematize it. Then that's on the side of art. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, it's like imitation Socrates says. You can never trust what an imitation says. Mm-hmm. Because it's out of your control. It's necessarily out of your control once it becomes that kind of living in the realm of art. I just imagine imitation Socrates is the Socrates who eats a lot of imitation crab meat. Oh, no. <laughs> oh, no. At least so it's made out of something healthy. Here, here's a question, because for, for Plato... The philosopher's job is all about knowing things, right? Knowing what is in its most true reality. What does the poet know? Because mm-hmm. one thing he hates about poets is they act like they know everything, and yet they don't know anything. And his example, which is so... Um, oh, I got an answer for you. Oh, okay. Let me give you his example. Yeah, give and then the example. Can... I'm afraid I'm going to forget it's... it. Yeah, his example is that that Homer gives all these military maneuvers but doesn't know anything about them. And he he gives speeches about um, getting the troops ready, but he doesn't really know anything about giving speeches to troops. Hmm. Which seems like kind of a boorish complaint to me. Yeah, I I agree. Who 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 on earth is reading Homer to discover uh, how to motivate troops, but – Yeah, well, that's kind of a perfect example of a benevolent lie. Who really cares, right? It's just – part of the fiction apparatus. So what do poets know, Christina? Well, the poets know what they don't know. Uh, Gadamer, the knowledge that one does not know. But the the poets whom Plato is engaging with here, and is it in Ion, Nathan, where, where he talks to the... That, that's um, one of the Rapso- dialogues, to be sure, yeah, and also in the Apology. Right. Th- those poets certainly go around acting like they know everything. Mm-hmm. And and I think probably just the number of actors who you see interviews with and they clearly think that the thing they do is the most important thing in the world, I think they certainly are not aware of the things they don't know. Oh, actors? So, That's a different yeah. issue. <laughs> well, but in, for Plato, it's not, right? Yeah. The actor and the poet and the, well, um, he's wrong. the singer are all kind of the same person. Well, he's wrong there. That's just flat mm-hmm. wrong. I mean, well, like, and, and, materially in the society, the yeah. rhapsode does all of those things. Uh, yeah. Oh, sure, sure. And if I can take a lateral step into another dialogue, I know that's been my bad habit this episode. It's okay. But I think that he addresses that in the symposium with the speech of Socrates there. Well, let's where, let's put a pin in that, Nathan, because that's oh. a book we're actually going to be reading for this series. Oh, we are? are we, can, can, I love can the I, symposium. Can I, can I give a 30-second pitch, though? Yeah, since it'll probably be a year and a half before we get there. Go for it. Okay. What he posits there is the philosopher is not the person who knows things, but the person who strives to know things because he's aware of his ignorance. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, I don't think that he would say that the philosopher is the sage. Did I come in under 30 seconds? Yes, way well under 30 seconds. Oh, good. So, but if if that's what the philosopher is, that's pretty much the same definition that Gadamer gives of the poet, right? Mm -hmm. Oh, sure, sure. Yeah. Maybe I'm a bad poet, but I don't think when I sit down to write a poem that I think, oh, I don't know anything. I, I usually have something I want to say. And maybe that makes me a bad poet. No, right? no. I, I'm, if you, are, if you are able to pin down your poetry and say, this is what it means, then you're a bad poet. I mean, all the okay. poets would say that. Am I right? Like, oh, I was just, Robert Frost, I was just walking in the woods and I saw these two paths and, you know. <laughs> you know, he says that kind of stuff all the time. Like, refusal to be pinned down is part of what. And Robert Frost again is the one who says the the secret sits in the center and knows. Right? We're all trying to get at it, but well, and again, the, the, I think this is one of the another of the places where the Romantic movement really has redefined so many terms that it's hard to 
read yeah. free romantic texts because you know this is something that I, I always dwell on when I read Dante is the fact that it's Virgil who accompanies him rather than a philosopher, but Virgil represents human reason, right? Because poetry is that articulation of the the capacity of reason for Dante. Mm-hmm. But that is still against Plato, at least at some level, to have that be his guide, right? Have Virgil right. be Oh, his absolutely, guide. yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, 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 absolutely. Which is good. This is actually a good transition to the myth of Ur, because I wanted to make sure we spent some time on that, um, because oh, it's all like, pick your guide, right? And, of course, I'm thinking of Dante. Um, but, but, but Nathan, can you talk to us about it, like how you handle the myth of Ur when you teach this? Certainly. So first of all, to, uh, you know, transition into it, uh, we get a call back to the very first book. Uh, Socrates says, well, you know, now that we've established the inherent goodness of Dikaiosune, justice, righteousness, whatever you want to call it, uh, now you need to give back what it is that I lent you, namely uh, the afterlife, right? Which mm-hmm. is what Kefala said, justice is giving back what someone has lent you, right? Which is one of Plato's masterful literary touches. Uh, but in this parable, uh, there's a soldier named Ur. Uh, his corpse, uh, and it reminded me of Hector because we've read Iliad so recently together. Yes. Uh, it doesn't decompose. Uh, and yet, after several days, I think it's 10 days, maybe 12, uh, they decide that they do need to put it on a soldier's funeral pyre. But as he's on the pyre, he resuscitates. Uh, and he tells of this journey that he made into the afterlife. So, in this journey, just to give the high points quickly, uh, he discovers that people are judged uh, according to their deeds while on earth, their wisdom, really. Uh, the good folks are given a view of the heavens. This is something that Dante inherits later, of course. The bad folks are punished, uh, you know, which is something that uh, I think Virgil is picking up on. Uh, and then, you know, they are reincarnated. Uh, so, you know, this is... Uh, what I always enjoy pointing out to my students that, you know, this is yet another uh, iteration of, of responsibility or duty in this dialogue. The people who are good, they are given that knowledge of the heavens, but then they go down and they serve their neighbors again. And I'm using Christian language there because I'm a Christian reader, but translate it however you will, right? And it's interesting because in the allegory of the cave, after the person goes out to the outer world, he has to go down into the cave again to try to educate those in the cave. And of course, the very first line of the dialogue is I went down to the Piraeus. So, I mean, again, this, this masterful literary touch, but the responsibility parable here is in the reincarnation cycle. uh, You are not assigned a life, but instead you are assigned a lottery number. And depending on where your lot falls, that's when you get to pick your next reincarnation. So the person who draws the best number picks first. The it's person like who draws the ultimate first room number, draw or something. It really is. It really is. <laughs> uh, and so I mean, you know, and and Socrates here, imitation Socrates eating his crab meat, uh, <laughs> is you know very clear that you know this is an allegory for human life, right? Every act that we undertake is in some sense choosing a life. And I dig that so much as sort of a, a final moral teaching. I mean, it 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 is fourth century BC existentialism. I yeah, do really dig it too. That Michael, it's incredible. I, I'm sorry, Michael. No, I, I, that's just what I was going to say. That it's, I mean, it's very Sartrean. It's it's the 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 person you become becomes your destiny, but yeah. it only becomes your destiny by the choices you've made. And the people who choose first don't necessarily choose wisely. Oh, absolutely not. Absolutely not. And that's interesting, too, because that has a little bit of that feel. The last shall be first and the first shall be last. Well, and then what's even more Sartrean is that when the fool chooses the tyrant's life and then discovers that he has to eat his own children. Yes. Which I I sort of jotted down which Greek story that is. It always makes me think of Titus Andronicus. (laughs) <laughs> but I know that Shakespeare was borrowing from this story. I just can't remember what the story is. Um, but, I mean, what's what's notable about that is that person blames the gods for having to eat his children when he's the one who made the choice. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah, so so that vision of freedom is always a temporal freedom, right? You, you're free for a while until you eventually just become the things you've chosen, and we're right back to... 
we're right back to in the inferno. Right, right. And what what, what marks Odysseus in this parable uh, is that unlike the version of Odysseus that we see in Sophocles, and I keep going back to Sophocles because the more I read this, the more I think he is interacting not with Greek tragedy broadly, but specifically with his plays. That could be just because I've read those plays more than others. But in the version of Odysseus that we see in Philoctetes, uh, Odysseus has the... I don't want. I, I I don't know whether to call it to fate or something else. Uh, that he has to become the most morally reprehensible character in that play, in order to win the Trojan War. And so this version of Odysseus says, "I'm going to take this freeholder, this farmer. The worst thing he's ever going to have to do is butcher his livestock for meat. He's never going to have to betray someone. He's never going to have to order someone's death. He's never going to have to." do these horrible things that the Odysseus that we meet in Homer and in Sophocles has to do. Hmm. I mean, one of the questions we asked at the end of the episode on book eight is how many people who were president of the United States left office a better person than they went in. Oh my goodness. (laughs) That's fun. That's fun. There's just a, there just must be true that when when people talk about absolute power corrupting absolutely the thing it corrupts is the person holding the power like like it it does real damage to your soul to to have to make those decisions i would think oh yeah it makes me yeah. glad i've never even been a department chair mm-hmm. <laughs> that's good that's good i think that's true you and it has to do with walking in a certain way um, walking, and I keep thinking of Psalm one, right? Like you're sitting in the seat of mockers, like you're just kind of settling in to a certain way of life. That once you walk that path, it's harder and harder to turn out of it. Um, it seems to me that that's very important to more to Augustine and Aristotle than to Plato. But the myth or parable, as you call it, seems to suggest that that that's a big part of it walking mm-hmm. in the way of your following your guide. Right. So. And I also think it's interesting that Ajax here chooses an animal's life because he doesn't want to have to make choices. He doesn't want to have to seek honor. He doesn't want to have to, again, do those things that made Ajax's story such a heartrending one. Right. And think about what an animal, you know, doesn't have to do. Right. To be the perfect lion, you just have to have lionness. You don't have to, you know, make any moral decisions. You don't have to stop yourself from overeating. You don't have to deal with gluttony or, or pride or, well, you, <laughs> there's a bad joke in there. have to deal with some sort of pride. Oh, I knew there was a bad joke in there just waiting to come out. That's a Freudian slip if ever there was one, right? The, the pride of lions. You know what That's I'm saying. That, the vanity. That, 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 that takes those there's a kind of freedom in having those choices removed. Uh, ironically. Absolutely. Yeah. But it's not a freedom appropriate to a human being. No, it's not appropriate to a human being. So he takes a step away from being a human um, by, of course, by becoming an animal, but um, like Thoreau eating the uh, raw chipmunk. Yeah. But he's, he reviled that part of himself. He's just like, that's not good. I've got to, you know, live to my higher nature, not the lower nature. But here, if you deliberately choose an animal's life, you're, it's kind of a lazy cop-out, isn't it? That certainly seems to be the implication. Yeah. And I mean, I think that's why Odysseus is the hero of this parable, right? Because he doesn't choose the animal, but he also doesn't choose the tyrant. He right. He wants to be the freeholder. That's, that's a good point. And Odysseus, it kind of does come back to him making kind of the right choices and... Uh, we saw in the Odyssey, wanting to go back home, not settling with Calypso, that whole thing. It's very interesting. Well, uh, we're coming up on time, but I, I didn't want to... If there's any other issues that have been pressing on your minds or passages that you guys wanted to talk about... Well, just the, the notion of the nature of poetry as mimesis, I, I think that's at, very, at the very least arguable. Oh, yes. sure, sure. He, he he doesn't seem to conceive of a non-mimetic art. So one thing I used to do when I would teach this book is I would show 
my students uh, a painting by Max Beckmann, who's a German expressionist painter. And his paintings are kind of semi-realistic, but I think the idea is they express something of the deeper nature of things um, in, in, in the ways that they're, specifically the ways they're not mimetic and what would Plato think of that. But as we've been talking about this, I'm not sure he would like that anymore because the, the things that Beckmann would be showing, uh, the non-mimetic elements of his paintings are not reasonable elements. They're emotional elements, thus German expressionism. So, um, you know, if any of my, if, yeah. if any of my students who have been through that exercise with me are listening, see how wrong I was. <laughs> but see, it, it is a, a it, when I had initially asked, you know, what kind of responses since Plato have you heard that you've been uh, interested in and kind of picked up on, uh, for me, it would be reading Gadamer and several others who are just saying Plato and mostly what you're saying, Nathan, people who read Plato incorrectly give mimesis a bad name and don't understand that mimesis isn't necessarily a lie. And in fact, it might be even more driving toward the truth because it's revealing something that you can't otherwise see sure, about sure. whatever it is. So truth, if truth is your object, which it certainly is for Plato, then um, to be too mimetic, to use a really strict definition of the word mimetic, is to fail because it doesn't take into account what is interesting to me, which is the whole um, uh, phenomenological aspect of art. Right. How, you know, your encounter with the truth is necessarily a subjective encounter with the truth, all of our, all of us, that there isn't just a rock out there. There's always you looking at a rock or whatever it is. Right. And, and, you know, Plato is just not interested in that. No, um, that's moving from knowledge to opinion. Mm-hmm. Yeah, right. it's opinion. Or he doesn't yeah. have the resources, right? And I mean, I, I've been harking back to the romantics a lot this episode, but I think that no, one, of their, one of their genuine contributions is to conceive of art as a creative activity rather than right. an expressive or a, a reflective activity uh, so that you're actually bringing something into existence that didn't exist before. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that ultimately that is more adequate to the actual practices that we call art than are the notions of expression of a pre-existing artistic personality, or even more so, the idea of, of mimesis of nature, right? I mean, which, mm-hmm, right. which honestly, I mean, Dante is still operating under that model in the Paradiso. So, I mean, it's, it's not as if that idea went away. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, I, and I do think that, you know, the Romantics, when they start to conceive of it as bringing into existence that which did not exist before, actually making it a creative process, I think that's more adequate to what's going on than, than the predecessor notions. Mm-hmm. And you're, of course, reminding me of that whole mirror and the lamp. Like With the mimesis, uh-huh. you have the mirror, and with the romantic energies, you have the lamp. I, I find the whole idea of art creating something totally separate, reprehensible in a lot of ways, and problematic, but that's a whole other conversation that which is why I, I raised um, the issue of uh, phenomenology because I think with the moderns and I'm particularly thinking of Wallace Stevens who is of course a neo-romantic right in his heart but it's he's interested in this sort of mixture between the real and the imaginative right so you're not creating some totally separate third thing the third thing that you created is necessarily a back and forth between the, the poet and the thing that the poet's writing about. Dialectic, actually. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Do, you, do you see what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. And so it, it, where the romantics really were about creating this oh, other, whole other separate thing. I keep thinking about Coleridge's Zen plastic power of the imagination. You know, like I break everything Yeah, apart that's what I had in mind as well. It. Thank you. Yeah. 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 And I, I've always, not always, I used to be quite seduced by it, but since my study of Flannery O'Connor and several other things have grown to be suspicious of that kind of idea of, of art. Right. And our well, listeners, our listeners who would like to learn more about that suspicion would do well to read Christina's book, the incarnation oh, of art of Flannery you. O'Connor. Thank you for the shout out. I appreciate that. Available now, that wherever fine books are sold. <laughs> and paper by, and paperback for the first time. Right. So, but yeah, that whole idea of, of discovering something that's out there versus making it up. Um, creating it as if you were God is something that is an interesting question to me. So 
And in that way, I'm platonic, just in that way, right? That, <laughs> that, I, that I think it's about, you know, seeing what's out there. But you that, don't that have to be platonic to, to, I no. mean, you could just as well call yourself Thomist, which is, I'm sure, where <laughs> O'Connor's getting it from. And that's where I am. Right, or Dantean. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. I'm just saying that the idea that there's something out there that we can call the real does exist. Oh, sure, sure, sure. Yeah, I, I didn't yeah. mean to deny that. Yeah. I, I apologize yeah. if that's the... No, 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 I'm just, <laughs> no, I'm just clarifying. No, no, you, but you know how the romantics with their, they're sort of like co-creating with God um, can, can fall into pride pretty easily. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. The, yeah. Unle- the uh, unacknowledged legislatures of mankind. Yes. All of that. Yeah. Anyway. And then you end up with Frankenstein, right? Dr. Frankenstein eventually. Well, I think that's it. Are we, unless you guys have anything else you want to say. That's Plato's Republic, friends. <laughs> yeah. And we are finishing the book and uh, the book of 10 and the book of the Republic. So, all right. Listeners, thank you for joining us. You've been listening to the core curriculum together by the Christian org. Thank you for your listening in on us and join us next time. <laughs>